Hello and welcome to a new episode of Other Record Labels. I'm your host, Scott Orr, where we talk about the art and culture of running an independent record label. And today we're going to do something a little bit special, and I think it's kind of important. Um, I want to talk about the history of the record label, like, you know, what we're trying to do uh, as record label owners or as people who are thinking about starting a record label. I think it's good to kind of dig back into the archives and and find out uh, a little bit more about where did this all begin um, and how does that impact us today? And so I'm going to give you, I'm going to mansplain the record label to you for a couple of minutes. I'm going to give you a little bit of history about recorded music and, and how we got to where we are today and with the major labels that we have today and the formation of independent record labels. And then I have two things I want to talk about. I want to talk about um, what basically two lessons I think that we can learn from the history of record labels and how it affects how we operate today and how it uh, affects um, life in independent music. And I think there is some really interesting takeaways that we can have from this short little history that um, is completely inaccurate. And and I've, I've just pieced together from things that I've found online um, and trying to understand, I think it's really, I think it is really helpful because, um, you know, where did these things come from? Where did the album come from? Where did, how long is recorded music around? I think it teaches us too. It's like, you know, some of these um, things that we do out of, out of uh, default, we, it's helpful to know what are the origins and do we even want to maintain and, and keep doing these traditions um, that, that have, have been happening for the past, you know, hundred years. And so that's what we're going to, that's what we're going to dig into today on our website. We have these um, resources and basically what I've been doing on other record labels.com is I've been um, putting all of our topics that we cover on the podcast and the articles um, that I have and the resources that I have on the site, I've, you can now search by topic. And so if you go to otherrecordlabels.com, right there on the main page, you can says, choose your topic. And if you click that, it expands um, all of the different topics that we have covered over the past couple of years. Let me go there right now and I'll give you an example. Uh, so if you click on choose your topic, there's all of the resources we have on Bandcamp, um, our book recommendations over the past few years for business books and music books um, and record into, uh, record label books. Um, there's our creating a business plan article on manufacturing cassettes, um, how to press vinyl and how to review your test pressings, uh, web design, um, our series on why artists need a record label, all that stuff. You can find at otherrecordlabels.com. Okay, let's dive into the history of the record label. Now, before recorded music, there was only a few ways you could listen to music. And mostly it was like theater on like on Broadway. Um, you would listen to music in church, I suppose. And then through sheet music. Sheet music was like the most common way that people would buy music. Um, in fact, songwriters would make money um, mostly through selling sheet music. So sheet music worked like this. Someone would go into the grocery store or the retail store and buy the newest song. And so it was like probably like ragtime music. So they would go home with this <laughs> sheet music. I don't know how much it would cost, probably a few pennies. And someone would play it on the piano. So everyone would gather around to hear Auntie play us a new song. It's a little different from how we release singles today, although I'm pretty sure Beck released an album recently on sheet music a few years ago. I don't know if anyone heard it um, but uh, or saw it. But that was, that was kind of in the early 1900s. That was 
you know, really how people were buying music. And if we go back a bit further into the late 1800s, Thomas Edison invented the phonograph and he patented a way to record audio onto tinfoil covered cylinders. Eventually, you know, basically would speak into a microphone and then the vibrations uh, indented it onto the cylinder. And so um, cylinders were the kind of the very first records or the very first... um, physical recordings, the the mechanisms that they used. The first song ever recorded was Mary Had a Little Lamb by Thomas Edison. And so, and I don't know if he sang it or if he just said Mary Had a Little Lamb. I'm not sure. I don't know if it's out there. It's probably not out there. Um, The original intent was not necessarily entertainment. It wasn't music. It was audio letters. It was uh, family records, like, you know, hearing everyone's voice. Um, after they've passed on, which is a really cool thing. Books for the blind, which is a great thing. Uh, and then uh, a clock that announced time was another invention that that he had thought of. Over the years, however, Edison, and, and this is you know taking place from maybe 1880 or so uh, up all the way into to 1920 and beyond. But over the years, he kind of lost interest in this machine, which allowed other companies to swoop in. And he was at the time was a little preoccupied with inventing the light bulb. Very, very busy fella. And interestingly, Alexander Graham Bell took over the concept and improved it because there was this specific interest in the phone industry. And again, in those days, this was always for business purposes, like dictation uh, or telephone messages. It wasn't immediately intended to be used for entertainment. So originally when it came to the various type of cylinders, they could only hold up about two minutes of audio, not to mention there was no way to replicate them. The, the speaker or the musician had to re-record each performance over and over. And, and so there, there was like many incarnations of the cylinder. Um, it, it kind of looks like, like a small like can of, of pop maybe or Coke. Um, these cylinders, um, eventually, uh, and so this was back in like, I think it was like in the early, it was about maybe 1901 when they first were able to duplicate these cylinders, because the problem was, um, a musician had to re-record it. So they only took, they only held up to two minutes of audio. And so it, for music purposes, you would have to re-record each purposes. When they came up with this duplicating version, um, where they would take a master and they could duplicate it up to 150 times a day. And they were cheaper. They were black now. And they also, which is interesting, they had this small bevel along the top, very much like a uh, like a soda can. Uh, and, and on this bevel, they could um, accommodate the title of the recording. So not necessarily uh, a record label as we know it, but we're getting close. So in theory, the first record label was Edison Records, but not really the type of record label that we're familiar with today, uh, like a collective of musicians. It was just Edison's records. Um, the second record label, however, was Columbia Records. And interestingly, they're the oldest record label that is still in operation today. And Columbia started out as a seller and a distributor of Edison phonographs. And they would repair them and they would sell them and they had kind of the rights to a certain territory in the District of Columbia. It was Columbia who invented the 10-inch disc. And so not only that, but they invented what became known as the double-faced disc. So they could put recordings on both sides. And so this kind of spelled the end of the cylinders and created the era of discs that we're more familiar with today. And we started moving away from these unreliable, hard to to duplicate uh, cylinders that 
didn't hold a lot of audio. I should also talk about Victor, uh, Victor talking machines, which you might be familiar with if you imagine that dog uh, listening um, into the 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 um, the horn uh, speaker. Um, this company is known primarily for two things: the very popular gramophone, which is easy to find today. I have one actually in the basement, and they're easy to find at rec- um, antique stores. The other thing they're known for is this this picture of the dog listening to his master's voice coming out of the horn and and their famous slogan, his master's voice. Fun fact, um, his master's voice would also become HMV, which up until just a few years ago was a big record store chain in the UK, in Canada. So Victor was known for higher quality sound recordings than Columbia, and they both started releasing uh, collections of opera recordings. Uh, and and this started to become some of the first musical records to be sold. So, of course, we all know the term record label comes from the actual paper label around the center of the record. And this has become far more symbolic today than the utilitarian definition from the early 1900s. But the concept remains the same. And so today, we can be a record label without even actually putting a label on a record. We can be an entirely digital record label. So that term has evolved. But originally, it was just that label. And interestingly, the center label from... Are, are you bored, by the way? Is this is this a good idea? I, I don't know. I, I thought this was interesting for me to know. I mean, I have a podcast about record labels. You listen to a podcast about record labels. So... Hopefully you're finding this interesting. I th- I think it's kind of interesting. It's good to know, right? Anyway, the interesting thing about the, the Columbia record labels is that they're not that different than how they were over the past hundred years. Like Columbia has kind of, I don't know if they deviate. I mean, there's different colors, but they've kind of stayed similar to that um, original record label uh, and the logo and the big um, copy uh, typography on the top that says Columbia Records. What's interesting is that originally you had three or four companies and they were specializing in, and this is what I think is really interesting about the whole story, is they're specializing in selling and servicing these machines that played records and selling music uh, or voice recordings were a means to an end. They increased the value of their main products, which was the machines. And it makes it really easy to understand why Philips, an audio hi-fi company, would invent the cassette or why Sony, the inventor of the Walkman and eventually the Discman, would be part of creating the compact disc. And it's no coincidence why Apple would open one of the first legitimate MP3 stores around the same time they released the iPod. Tech companies creating content to sell products or subscriptions is even more ubiquitous today when we think of companies like SiriusXM or Netflix, uh, and of course, Apple. So by the end of the 60s, CBS was the top record label, which followed by Warner Brothers, uh, RCA Victor, Capital EMI, Polygram, MCA were also very popular. By the 70s, you had new labels come on the scene like EMI and Curb Records. And in the 80s, we got referred to what was referred to as the big six, which included Warner, EMI, Sony, BMG, Universal, and Polygram. And then over the, the, the following 25 years, more and more mergers uh, have left only three major labels. At the time of recording this today, we have Warner, Universal, and Sony. And the list of subsidiary labels is huge. For example, under Universal, you have labels like Island, Def Jam, Verve, Interscope, Capital, and then a bunch of international brands 
Under Sony, you have Columbia, Epic, Provident, The Orchard, and RCA. A major label, just to give you an idea, is considered any label that has greater than 5% of the global market share. So independent labels, on the other hand, refer to labels that are not affiliated or funded by any of the major labels. They handle their own marketing, distribution, and funding. What's really special about independent record labels and going back to the history of independent record labels is that a lot of them, if not all, started out promoting a genre or a group of people as opposed to promoting a technology. For example, Sun Records, which is home of Elvis and Johnny Cash and Sam Perkins, profoundly, these guys profoundly impacted the proliferation of rock and roll. Not only that, but Sam Phillips, and I highly recommend his biography, um, but Sam Phillips disregarded a lot of the rules surrounding race and what could or couldn't be played on the radio or what some labels refuse to manufacture and distribute. And so he kind of came in as an independent record label. See, uh, Sun Records was was recording these musics and then giving uh, musics, <laughs> recording the music and then giving the the masters to other record labels to distribute and sell. And when they wouldn't release music that he was passionate about, he became his own label and decided to record these, duplicate them himself, and to distribute them himself. And so even though major labels dominated the music industry, independent labels carved a space for themselves by promoting music genres that were outside of the mainstream. They were often a good predictor, and still are, of what might eventually become the mainstream. And they served a smaller group of more loyal music fans as opposed to attempting to reach the masses. And we see that today. We see that today with small labels that might have a diehard following of 200, 300, 400, 500, 1,000 fans as opposed to passive listeners on the radio or on Pandora or on Spotify, uh, who, you know, artists who might have a million fans who aren't fully engaged. Um, and so we see that all the time. Okay. Now we're done with that little history lesson, and I'm probably left with a small percentage of you that I've started out with. But the question is, what does this history of record labels teach us about how we run our record labels? What is the the takeaway? What is the protein from this big mansplain lecture that I've just given you? There's two things I think is really fascinating. As I read through this, there's two things that stood out to me that I would like to uh, cling to. Um, and, and, and that I feel like I've learned. First of all, we realize that artists no longer need us in the same way uh, or, or, or as opposed to how artists certainly needed record labels 100 years ago. 100 years ago, the only way to have your music recorded was to have also invented the technology to record that music. And we were, of course, a long way from that. But even in the, the 70s and 80s, it, it cost hundreds and Thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars to have recording technology. Even into the 90s when it was ADAT, it, you still had to have these expensive microphones and, and it wasn't to computer yet. Uh, it was early, but even Pro Tools. Pro Tools, up until the late 90s, early 2000s, you had to have their hardware. It was very, very convoluted, very, very expensive. And so there's, also, there's always been a barrier to record. And then, and until digital distribution, there was a massive barrier to get music into retail stores. You just couldn't do it as an independent artist. It was very difficult. So we're a long way from that reality. So it's important that we offer artists something completely different than what 
older record labels used to offer. They used to offer distribution. They used to offer recording and radio play. These things that were not accessible to independent artists that are now accessible to everyone. And so for record labels, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, a few months ago in our series on why artists need record labels, but there are things I think that because they don't need us, there are things that I think that we can offer them. We can offer them creative partnership. This is something I think is a really beautiful part of the record label and artist relationship is accountability. It's encouragement um, in, in advocating on behalf of the fans and saying to the artists, listen, you should write more. This is a great song. We should release this. This is a great album. I mean, I one time brought an artist in my living room and we recorded these songs that he had written and hadn't shared with anyone live off the floor, just recorded them in a row. We sat there for an hour. He played all 10 or 15 songs and it then became my job. And it took me two or three years to convince him that people need to hear this. This, this is really, really good music. And I finally convinced him to record a record and we released it and everyone loved it. And I think that is being, that's one of the things that I've really enjoyed is encouraging artists and being a part of that creative uh, relationship. I, I don't always influence their music. They don't always listen to me, but to be a creative partner uh, in a supportive way, in an accountability way, I think is a great thing. And uh, even though artists don't necessarily need record labels, that is one way that we can show up and help them. The other thing we can do uh, is that we can offer our experience. And we talked about the knowledge gap in a few episodes ago, uh, is that they may not know how to get on Spotify, even though it's accessible to everyone. They maybe just haven't done that process of finding out who the best digital distributor are. There's like one popping up every day and it becomes a little bit overwhelming to know how to get their music out there. They might fear, well, if I sign up with DistroKid or with CD Baby, am I giving away the rights to my music forever? Uh, even though that's not true, they could think that and they could that could prevent them from doing that. So we can offer our experience, show them what works, what doesn't. One of the best things I was able to do for artists over the past few years is tell them what is a worthy investment of their money and what isn't. Some people say, I'm going to hire this company for $500 to do, you know, to, to promote this or to, to plug my music. And I'm like, well, hold on a second. I've paid that. It's not worth it. Don't do it. Or I could say, listen, I've used this publicist and I've, I've spent a thousand dollars and I did get my money back and I really value that process. And so that's something we can bring to the table is our experience and our knowledge um, and, and say, listen, I've done this before. I'm not an expert, but I've done this before. Let me help you out. And the other thing we can bring them is community. And I've heard about this so often of, of labels who offer artists community and support and encouragement from other artists on their roster. And I think that's one of the biggest things that record labels bring their artists is community. The second thing I think we can learn from the history of record labels is nothing. We learn nothing from this history. And what I mean by that is that there are no rules. There's no template. There is no do it this way. We learn from this relatively short history that our origin story as independent record labels is completely different from the origin of major record labels. We exist for entirely different reasons. And that should teach us a few things. Number one is it should question why we do traditional things. Even the term singles, what does that mean? Uh, the, the concept of full-length albums or EPs, which mean extended plays and LPs mean long players. What does that mean? Where did that come from? Why are we still using that terminology? 
we can question radio plays and and why are we still thinking about that? Um, we can question exhaustive touring. That's not profitable. That's hard uh, on our artists mentally and physically and financially. All of these things that we do that we are copying from our ancestors, if you will, or for bands that our parents grew up with or that we've grown up with, we realize from this super short history or this history that was built upon technology and commerce that some of these things that we're emulating, we may not need to be emulating them, that we shouldn't be doing. And the second thing I think that it teaches us um, uh, or, or what we can or, or how we can remodel and change this is that we can question what innovations that we can pioneer uh, as record labels. There were le- record labels who were doing things that were completely new. Uh, and they were breaking um, barriers and and they were trailblazing and doing things at the time that were actually, in some cases, were even illegal or at least socially unacceptable. And so uh, I'm eager to see what you can do with your record label and what rules that you can disobey and what new things that you can invent. It's really fascinating to look at, you know, a record label like an independent record label like Sun Records who did things that were... Um, that were totally against social norms when it came to releasing and distributing different genres. And, and then we look at technology companies like Columbia who in, who improved on the recording device. And, and so I think that's really interesting. And I see labels who are getting a little bit involved with technology. And, um, and I just think it's really interesting that we can learn essentially that there are no rules from this history. We will look back and we realize that we're following these templates and it may ask uh, require us to question why are we following these templates? Why are we reusing these old templates? I hope that you found this helpful. Go to otherrecordlabels.com, search by topic. You will see this topic, the history of record labels, where you can click on it and read a little bit deeper and study and think about this process. I hope you found it helpful. I mean, I, I, I hope I haven't been patronizing in this episode. I wanted to kind of dig into the history of record labels. We've been talking about it a little bit recently to find out what can we learn and 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 we can learn that artists don't need us necessarily and we can reevaluate what we bring to the table and then we can realize that, listen, there's really nothing to be learned from this history except for the fact that there are no rules and there's no template and that we exist as an alternative to um, these tech companies and these major labels that that started many, many years ago, 100 years ago. Thank you so much for listening. Go to otherrecordlabels.com for all of your record label resource needs. <laughs>